as was mentioned in the prayer earlier, the holiday that we all know of is Memorial Day. And that time is set aside to remember those who have lost their lives in service of this country, to remember those who gave the ultimate sacrifice. And that's a matter that really truthfully is an understatement of what they've done. Just a day to remember them is will really never repay them for all that they did. But just as they gave their lives in service of a committed cause, those memorials are there to educate, to remind people of these events, and to let it stay in the forefront of your mind, to keep it in front of you at all times, so that you don't forget that sacrifice that was made. This evening we're going to be discussing a slightly different kind of topic, but we're going right along that line of education. As the scripture reading was tonight from Acts chapter 17, that's going to be our text for this evening if you'd like to go ahead and turn there. But in Acts chapter 17, Paul is standing and teaching in the city of Athens. I was privileged back in 2019 to actually be able to go to that city and to see some of the ruins that are there and to see some of the structures that are left standing. And so whenever I hear about the Areopagus and I hear about Paul preaching to these people, it has a little bit of a different connotation for me. And if I had had a couple more moments and some internet, I would have had some pictures pulled up for you guys to see from that and to illustrate that. But unfortunately, Twin Lakes has two weeks before they show up. So what's going to happen with this is we're going to discuss this whole chapter and basically explain it as best we can with the time that we have. Now, don't be scared. It's not going to be every single word. We're not going to be here for three hours trying to study it, even though that would be an excellent study. But the chapter here, we start off with a very discouraging moment for Paul. He was preaching in the region of Thessalonica. And we're going to go ahead and start reading verse 1. He says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ, and some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. Now, starting off, that sounds exciting. Sounds good. Sounds like the ministry in Thessalonica is going very well. But then we get to the next verse. But the Jews, who were not persuaded, became envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace, and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying, There is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Churches immediately, as it begins to grow, it immediately faces persecution from those who want to see this stop. Now notice what Paul's structure was whenever he would come to a city. What did it say he started off by doing? He went to the synagogue, the place of worship, the place he knew he could talk to people who were going to be focused at least somewhat on God. He started this basically on repeat. Every city he would go to, he did this. But as soon as things start to go well, it falls apart again. Now this is basically the entire 
lifestyle that Paul was living throughout the time of his ministry. He would go to a place, he would work hard with that congregation for a couple years. There would be some severe persecution. He would move on to another place, do the same thing, rinse and repeat. Now in this particular situation, Paul is in the region of northern Greece. Now if you, like, if you were to look at a map of Greece, Thessalonica would be far at the top and the city of Athens is far at the bottom. So if that gives you a little bit of an illustration of how much ground Paul covered, he covered an entire nation preaching the gospel. Now, the next city he went to was that of Berea. Now, we're very familiar with this city. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica because they searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. They didn't just take what Paul said at first at face value. They took it, they researched it, and then they came to their conclusion. So, another encouraging situation, but we notice what happens with the Jews. They go from Thessalonica to Berea to stop him there. Now, when we read this, it doesn't really give you the context of this greater region that we're talking about. To drive from the city of Thessalonica to Berea in modern-day vehicle going roughly 50 miles an hour, I think that's the speed limit on that highway, 53 minutes, 53 minutes between those two cities. That's with a modern highway having demolished a lot of the landscape in between. That is a very mountainous region. It's a very wide region, very difficult region. So these Jews were so committed to stopping what Paul was doing, they followed him for multiple days to shut down what he did, to damage what he was doing. They wanted to remove this entirely because they saw it as heresy. They saw it as wrong. Now, what were these people at this time? These were the educated these were the ones who were supposed to know the Bible, to know about the Word of God, to know what God wants them to do and to show them. These were leaders of the synagogues. But when they actually were shown the Word of God, instead of listening to it, instead of following after His will, they threw it away. They removed it. Now, we're going to see two different groups. And if you want to keep this sort of mentally separated in your mind, we're going to be focusing on several different groups. And the first group is that of the Jews. We see these are the first educated people Paul comes in contact with in this region, is the Jews, the leaders of the synagogues, things of that nature. The second group is what we saw in our scripture reading tonight. The Epicureans, the Stoics, the philosophers. These were pagan Greek men. These weren't Jews. These weren't religious men by any stretch of the imagination. These were Gentiles. Remember, Paul was sent as the apostle to the Gentiles. He was called out to go to these people. But Paul was constantly plagued by the fact that his own people were rejecting God. In fact, at one point he said, I could wish myself were accursed so that I could save some. So that some of these people could be saved, I could literally take on my own condemnation. That's what he wanted. That was the sacrifice he wanted to make for his people, but could not do it. He could not do it. So once he changes from these crowds and he starts going into the region of Athens. Now, if you know nothing about the history of this region, <clears throat> Athens was the hub of all intellectual thought of the ancient world. If you wanted to find some of the most well-known thinkers of the day, you went to Athens. This would have been the equivalent of us seeing Ivy League schools. Very powerful region and very in influential region, really. So Paul goes into this region, 
And he is coming in contact with the same type of people you may hear about in colleges today. Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, all these men would have had great influence in this region. Maybe not the exact same time as Paul, but still very influential. So let's start with when he reaches the city. <coughs> Verse 16, Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw the city was given over to idols. Therefore he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him and some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. This would have been something that would be very foreign to the Greek world, to the pagan world. Your God came down in the form of man and allowed man to kill him? That makes no sense to the pagan mind because the pagan mind says their gods are the great ones, the ones who are above humanity, the ones who man has to overcome his humanity to be on the level of them. So to them, that would have made no sense. Why would you have a God who's merciful? That's not in Greek culture. Why would you have a God who's compassionate? That's not in Greek culture. Why would you have a God who's willing to humble himself to that form to save you? Makes no sense. Makes no sense. So they wanted to hear what Paul had to say. Now, here's the difference. <coughs> the people in Berea, they heard what Paul had to say. They searched the scriptures they wanted to find out. Why? It was religious aspect. It was religiously important. <coughs> In the region of Athens, this would have been for entertainment. Really nothing more than that, entertainment. They saw this as something that they could find interesting. They loved to talk about this stuff. But it wasn't a matter of dr drastic importance. <coughs> So he goes about this, and he begins to preach what we know as the Sermon on Mars Hill. But what was Mars Hill? What was this place? This was a hill that was set aside for the express purpose of discussing ideas. Doing exactly what they're doing, but just for entertainment purposes. <coughs> so Paul is going to this place that would have been populated by the philosophers, by the intellectual thinkers of the day. For a comparison in your own mind, imagine going to Yale or Stanford or some of our Ivy League schools to debate the philosophy professors there. That's what's happening. That's what he's doing. He's going to the very heart of this place and he's going to take on, quote-unquote, the greatest minds of their generation. So what's he going to say? <clears throat> Many of us would probably struggle with the idea of, what on earth am I going to talk about? If I'm standing here and I'm debating, how am I going to deal with this? How am I going to talk to these people? But Paul took a very interesting approach here. He decides he's going to tell the whole story. It's a great place to start, is it not? Start from the beginning. Explain. Now, what he does is interesting here because he starts off with this very simple statement. 
Let's start in verse 22. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. Paul takes the approach of, first of all, describing some of the things that maybe they would have taken pride in. They would have found pride in the fact that they were a very religious city by their own standards. Everywhere you would have looked in the streets of Athens would have been an idol after another idol. Idol to this God, an idol to this God. To this very day, if you were to go to the city of Athens and go stand up on the Acropolis, which is the highest point in the city now, and just look out, you can see ruins of ancient temples. On the Acropolis alone, there were about four or five different temples to different gods. So in this very center of the city, all these idol buildings are shown, all these worship places are shown all over the city. Now, if you're Paul, and you have the attitude that he has, you have the knowledge that he has, this is going to burn you up. You're going to be frustrated with what you see. Everywhere you look, you see something more that shows you this is wrong. And so as he was going throughout the city, he was talking to every single person he came in contact with, marketplace, place of worship, anywhere someone would listen to him. He was willing to do this. And he says, I saw one idol. Now he's not about to say that this idol is the true God, but what he's about to say is, you don't know the true God. You have all these idols, all these structures that you've built, but you missed the point. You missed the whole point. He says, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything. Since he gives to all life and breath and all things, and he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of all the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwelling. The first thing he does, he compliments them in their own minds, he addresses something that's very relatable for them. He follows it up with, you missed something though. And he describes this God. He says he doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. It was a common thought in the ancient pagan world that if a God did not have a temple, did not have a lot of worshipers, he was not a very powerful God. He didn't have a lot of prominence, a lot of power. What Paul is saying the God that we serve, the true God, he's not affected by that. He doesn't dwell in these great temples, these great palaces that you've built because he gave you everything you need to build it. He says everything you put together to bring this structure into existence came from God. Came from this God that you don't know. So let me describe him. He says that even with these people, he says he is made of all, made all from one blood, every nation. Now, something that's important to notice about this. Paul is a what? He's a Jew. 
He's talking to who? Greeks. It's important to note that in the ancient world, it wasn't the Jews alone who thought that they were a special people. It wasn't the Jews who brought the word barbarian into existence. The Greeks thought they were the most impressive race on the face of the earth. The Jews thought the same. The Romans also thought that. These nations thought of themselves as the true inheritors of the world. And what did Paul just say? You're not. You're not. Greek culture is not superior. He says Jewish culture is not superior. You know what is superior? The Lord who made them all. He's making a very powerful statement. Let's not miss the context of what is being described. He is shattering their very worldview in one sentence. In one sentence, he's taken everything they have learned their entire lives and is turning it on its head. Jew and Gentile alike. But let's continue. Verse 26, And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of all the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Also, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devices. Again, this is shattering the very idea that these people hold to. He's saying that the entire reason we exist is to follow after God. Again, that's not something they would have been taught. They would have been taught you follow the gods in order to give you a boost through life. You follow after this God in order to make you a better warrior. You follow after this God if you want to be a better farmer. You follow after this God if you want to have more children or be more prosperous. In their minds, the gods were there to serve them. What Paul is saying is you were made to seek after God, to follow after Him. Now remember, these men are the educated ones. These are the ones who are supposed to know everything. And they had missed the main point of existence. So how does that apply to us today? How can I look at this passage and say, okay, well, what am I supposed to do with it? Do we not have people today who claim to know all there is to know about the world? Who claim to know the purpose for us being here? Or some think the lack thereof? Truth is not determined by the number of letters after your name. Or the number of years you spent in school. The reality is, even many of these people who have spent all their lives trying to disprove this book and disprove God have had to resort to the fact that something has to exist. Something has to be there. They may not want to acknowledge it as the God of the Bible, but they admit something has to be there. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense. Paul is teaching to this group of people and trying to show them the very reason for their existence and trying to show them through explaining this the path to the Lord to show them who God is. He says, Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, 
because he hath appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. By the man whom he has ordained, he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Now take a moment and try to put yourself in their shoes. You've never heard of this. There's no prophecy of a Messiah in Greek culture. But this man comes to your city, is standing in your place of learning, has told you every single philosophy you've held to is wrong. And on top of that, this God who he's teaching to you, there's coming a day of judgment. There's coming a time when he's going to end all of it. And on top of that, he sent someone in the form of a man. And he's the one who will be the judge. He's the one who will stand on our behalf as well, depending on what choice we make. Probably many of us could imagine what our response would be one way or another. Some of us, even today, probably would sit back and say, Oh, yeah, yeah, okay, sure. Cool. Others might take that very seriously and say, okay, what do I need to do about it? But Paul is dealing with these people and teaching them just like any other. He doesn't hold them in greater esteem because of their position. He treats them as though they are the same people he was reasoning with in the marketplace. This passage is a great example of how one should teach. Notice what was taking place throughout this. Did Paul ever once deal with himself? (coughs) Aside from describing who he had seen? It wasn't about Paul. He didn't even have a book he could show them and say, hey, read. He was just simply reasoning with them about the reality of the world itself. He said these idols don't mean anything. If these idols were of gods who created everything, then why did you have to make a place to worship them? Why did you have to make, why can your God be taken down with someone else's hands if he is so great? And then finally, he says he has given assurance of this. God's proven this is going to happen. How? By this man who he sent, this messenger, this one who was going to be the Messiah. He raised him from the dead. He raised him from the dead. Look at verse 32. And this is really a moment in the scriptures that shows us how we should respond when teaching the world and what we should expect. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them, Dionysius, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. It can sometimes be difficult to stomach the fact that just because we teach someone doesn't mean they will obey. Just because we take the time to sit down to study the gospel with someone, even sometimes when you can see it clicked, they refuse to obey. 
We read in the passages of Scripture different points to help, A, to encourage, to warn. But this passage in particular is a great example for all of us. Because it keeps us from having the mindset of we're supposed to win every single time. It's a wonderful thing to win a soul to Christ. There's really no greater feeling in the world than that. But equally, there's few feelings that are as heartbreaking as someone rejecting it. But what Paul shows in this example is that even though there were some who said that they would never listen, they're mocking the very idea, and there were some who said, you know what, I just don't have time for that today. There were some who said, I'm following after Christ. And don't miss this point here. It says Dionysius the Areopagite. Where is Paul teaching? The Areopagus. This was one of the philosophers. One of the people who would spend their time here. One of the great thinkers of the day heard what Paul had to say and accepted it. He accepted it. I heard of one occasion a preacher went on a mission trip to China and on this trip they were studying with those at the college I believe it was in Beijing I don't think it may have been that but one of the larger cities there and while they were studying this philosophy professor came and wanted to talk to them and they sat down they studied and eventually this philosopher became a Christian he was baptized into Christ and when this preacher asked him why did you believe what was the thing that made you believe he said, I realized philosophy was never going to satisfy. It was never going to have the end result that I wanted. And when I heard about God, when I heard about what was taking place, there was an end result. There were answers. Answers to the questions I was asking. That is what we can show the world. When we go out in this community, we're not just showing the wonder of our building. We're not just talking purely about the family aspect either. We're teaching of how great our God is and how He deserves, not only should get, but deserves the worship that we give Him because of what He has done for you and for me. Paul gives us wonderful examples throughout the book of Acts and really throughout all of his epistles on how we should teach, how we should show God to others. And this example here is one that we can find encouragement in purely because of the fact he didn't back down. He wasn't scared of who he was talking to because he knew his God and he knew what to preach. Just take a moment and think, is there anything in that sermon that seemed difficult to say? Anything in the sermon that Paul taught that just seemed so deep and so difficult to grasp. Most of it's very surface level. Most of it's fairly easy to comprehend. You don't have to have a PhD and understand all the Greek lexicons and understand Hebrew to teach the Word of God. Even though Paul easily could have done that, he easily could have taken this long, drawn approach of going through the history of the Jews. But he understood the main point. 
There is a Lord. He's above all that we understand on this earth. He sent His Son, who died and rose again the third day. And He wants you to be a part of that. It's a simple message. Sometimes it seems so simple that we say there's got to be more. There's got to be more to say than that. But the reality is that was the whole message of God. That's the whole message He gave you and me. You see, He never wanted this to be a difficult task to become a Christian. He wanted that to be available to all men. But maybe you never have become a Christian. Maybe you've never named the name of Christ. Maybe you just don't know how. If you want to know how, we're all willing to teach you. We're all willing to sit down and talk with you about it because there's no reason for us to leave here without doubt or with doubt. But what will we choose to do? He's made his way available. His plan is simple. Hearing the word, Romans 10, 17. Believing that word to be true, John 8, 24. Based upon that belief, we're willing to repent of all of our past sins. We just read that in Acts chapter 17. Paul telling them that the times of this ignorance, the times of ignoring, those are done. Those are gone. So we must change our way of thinking to follow after Him. And based upon that repentance, that changed mind, which brings a changed life, we're willing to confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, Romans 10.10. And based upon that confession, that acknowledgement, that pledge, following after Christ, we can be baptized into Christ, washing away all those sins, raised to walk in newness of life. Just like Christ was raised from the dead, we can be raised from the death of sin and to live a new life in Him. Now, maybe you already did that. Maybe this sermon that Paul preached on Mars Hill was truthfully not something that you didn't already know. But maybe you forgot the point. Maybe in hearing this you missed the point that God is Lord. Maybe we started to allow the things of this world to draw us away from Him and they became more important than God. He wants you to come home. He wants you to make that right this very evening if there's something amiss. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He wants to make that way available. We have these passages, these moments, to encourage us to press forward, to encourage us to teach the others in the world and to not be afraid to do so. So if there's any need this evening, Anything that's amiss in your life, don't hesitate. Don't wait. Don't try to fix it yourself. Come now as together we stand and as we sing.